Well, good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you, and uh, welcome to those who are with us for the first time. It's really very special to have you here. Um, can I add my word of thanks to those who laboured so hard to make Friday night a success? Um, it really was so encouraging to see so many of you uh, rolling up your sleeves and getting involved, and I think we were all greatly encouraged by what happened. Um, also, can I add a word of encouragement to you for the Sing a New Song workshop this evening? Uh, you may be thinking, well, you know, I'd like to get involved in the life of the church, I'd like to encourage my brothers and sisters at St Barnabas, but I've no idea how to do it. Well, one of the ways you can do it is by singing, by knowing why you sing and singing appropriately. And that's what this workshop will teach you. So I do uh, warmly commend it to you. Now, won't you please keep the Bible open at the passage Alice read for us and also have the white bulletin open with the outline of where we're going in the next few minutes. And uh, first, I'm going to ask for God's help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, and providing all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. Will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, that each of us may be conscious that we're listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling us now to follow him into the future, for we ask it in his name. Amen. At uh, the University of Yale in North America, there's a, a rather unusual garden outside the university library. Uh, in one corner, there is a marble pyramid, uh, which is a symbol of time. In another corner, there's a, a sort of rather large donut-shaped structure standing on its side, which is um, standing for energy. And then uh, in another corner, there's a huge dice kind of standing on its edge, looking as if it might topple over one way or the other at any moment. And that is a symbol of chance. Now that garden represents a particular view of reality. For some people, it is their big picture. They believe that there is time, energy and chance. And these are the things that shape your life but not everyone looks at life that way. Christians have a different big picture. Christians believe that God is at the centre of the universe, that he is sovereign over everything, and I mean everything. And that is the message of the book of Revelation. We started to think about this last week. And this morning what I want to do is to explore the great truths about God described in verses 4 and 5 of our passage this morning because they serve as a heading for the rest of the section. 
And what we see in these verses is the conviction that God gives his people grace and peace to enable us to maintain a faithful witness to Jesus under all circumstances. That is John's conviction and he wants it to be our conviction too. Uh, Just because we have that conviction doesn't make us arrogant or proud. Uh, It doesn't mean that we think we have all the answers. But, uh, you see, the same God, he tells us elsewhere in James chapter 4, you don't know about tomorrow. You don't have all the details. You don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. You don't know what's going to happen next year, next week, or even tomorrow morning. But there is a radical difference, my dear friends, between believing that life is the result of impersonal forces, time, energy, chance, and the belief that the God of the Bible gives us the grace and peace that we need to live for him in all circumstances. There is a huge difference between those two experiences. And that's what the people in the seven churches in Asia needed to hear from John. Now, why seven churches? Uh, In fact, there were at least ten churches that had already been planted by the time John was writing. But seven, you see, is the favourite number in the book of Revelation. The number seven signifies completeness uh, or fullness. And the idea goes all the way back to the account of creation in the book of Genesis, where we read that God created everything in the universe in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. Now that doesn't mean that he put his feet up. It means that he delighted in his perfect finished work of creation. And that is the background to the significance of the number seven in the book of Revelation. And here you see the the seven churches is a way of talking about the completeness of the church, meaning all of God's churches in every age. And uh, we know we're on the right track with that because when we get to the letters in chapters 2 and 3, you'll find that each letter ends with the same memorable phrase. It ends like this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. So each letter is not just to an individual church. It's for all God's churches. And that, of course, includes St Barnabas. But at the same time, you've got to remember that these seven churches in Revelation were real historical churches. And uh, they were probably selected because they were on a standard postal route in Asia, or what today you and I know as Western Turkey. Now last week, we saw that these churches were coming under pressure to compromise with the culture. And the reason for that is that they were beginning to experience serious persecution. 
The most reliable sources say that John wrote the book of Revelation around 95 AD when a man called Domitian was the Roman emperor. Domitian was a thoroughly nasty piece of work. He hated Christians, he despised the church, he took personal delight in watching Christians being tortured, he commanded everybody in the empire to, uh, uh, to call him Lord and God, and when Christians refused, he first persecuted them and then killed them. So these seven churches were already suffering or about to suffer for Christ's sake. And of course, in that situation, the pressure to compromise or to hide your faith is obviously enormous, isn't it? And so they desperately needed the the comfort and the direction that John was able to give. Now, I know that our circumstances aren't precisely the same, but don't we also know about the pressure to compromise, the pressure to hide our faith? Because, of course, the world around us has got a completely different view of reality. For most people, Jesus is not the centre. Actually, for most people, Jesus is completely unimportant. So it's very tempting, isn't it, to hide our faith from our colleagues at work, from our friends and from our neighbours. Now, because the situation in Asia was extremely urgent, John doesn't include any throwaway lines in his introduction. The greeting in verses 4 and 5 is not religious polyfiller. John hasn't simply inserted some kind of religious mush into his text before he gets to the main message. No, John wants to put steel into the hearts of the believers in the churches in Asia. And there's so much treasure in verses 4 and 5 that we're going to spend all our time this morning on those two verses and I'm going to leave you to work through verses 6 to 8 in the home groups this week. Now John's main point is this, that you can maintain a faithful witness to Jesus Christ under the protection of the God of the Bible. Why? Because he gives you grace and peace in all your circumstances. Or to put it another way, what gives you grace and peace is knowing the God of the Bible and knowing what sort of God he really is. So as you face the particular uncertainties that lie before you this week, and in particular the pressure to hide your faith from the people around you, what sort of God do you have? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, John tells us that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, you have the God for all your times. The God 
for all your times. Come with me to the greeting in the middle of verse 4. John writes, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now that's the way that John describes God the Father. He is the God for all your times. Now you'll notice there that John doesn't actually describe God in the way that you and I probably would. I think we would probably be more logical and describe him as God who was and who is and who is to come, but John doesn't do that. He says, grace and peace to you from him who is. In other words, he is the God of today. He is the God of now. He is the God of this precise moment. Some of you will have heard of uh, J.B. Phillips. Um, I think he's probably best known for translating the Bible into modern English somewhere around the middle of the last century. And around the time of the Second World War, J.B. Phillips asked a group of young people a question. And he said to them, look, uh, I just want you to give me the first answer that comes into your mind without even thinking about it. And his question was this, does God understand radar? Uh, Their immediate answer was, no, he doesn't. Uh, Radar at that time was a relatively recent invention. And in the minds of these students, you see, God was the Ancient of Days. So he wouldn't necessarily be immediately up to speed with something as new as radar until they thought about it. And uh, then they corrected themselves and realised, well, of course, he's God. He knows everything, so of course he understands radar. But you see the point. It's relatively easy, isn't it, for us to think of God as him who was, but not necessarily to think of him as he who is. But the God of the Bible is the God who is. He's the contemporary God for today, for your now. And that is the first thing that John says about him. But then John goes on and he says that grace and peace come not only from him who is, but from him who was. Meaning that he is the eternal, historical God. And actually the word there means he always was. And what John is saying, you see, is not only that God is eternal, but also that he is the God who has been consistently and perfectly faithful to his people from the very beginning. If you want to think of it this way, what he's saying is, God has a track record. It's written in the Old and the New Testament. You can read it. And when you read it, can I encourage you to read it? as the story of the God who is stubborn in his faithfulness. That he refuses to let go of his people even when they go through seasons of rebellion and weakness. That's what the Old and New Testaments are about if you read them properly. And you know, we have the same thing in our advertising, don't we? Uh, If you go onto the George Whitfield College website... 
uh, there's a place where it says that the college was established in 1989. Now that's not just a piece of interesting information. There's actually a subtle argument going on behind the scenes there. Because it's a way of saying, we've been around for a while. We didn't simply set up shop last week. We've been training students for ministry for nearly 30 years. We've got a track record. It's a crude analogy. But that, you see, is the idea in verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was. God has a reputation with his people in the past. But there's more. Because this grace and peace is from him who is to come. Now again, I'm not sure we would have written it that way. I think if we were writing this, we might have said, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who always will be. That might be the way we would have written it. But again, it's not what John says. He says, from him who is to come. So he's not just saying that that time is going to go on and on into the future and God is always going to be around somewhere. No, he's saying a great deal more than that. He's saying that God will be present. He's going to invade history. He's going to bring human history to its appointed climax. He is to come. He won't simply be No, he will be here with his people. This is the God for all your times. Now think about that for a moment. If you have a God who is presently and who always was historically and who is to come in the future then there is no time, is there, in which he is not able to be his people's God. There's a place in the book of Psalms where the psalmist is facing all kinds of difficulties. But he prays to the Lord with complete confidence and he says, my times are in your hands. And whatever it is that you might be dealing with this morning, and I know some of you are dealing with some really difficult things, this says something to us. It says that this God, for all your times, doesn't give you kind of nice, pre-packaged, cellophane-wrapped solutions for all your problems. He doesn't do that. What he does is he gives you himself. He is present with all his people in all their times. The God for all your times. But then secondly, what we have here is the Spirit for all your weakness. And again, John describes the Spirit in a rather unexpected way. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now again, as with the seven churches, the number seven is talking about the the fullness or the, the completeness, the perfection of the Holy Spirit. 
But in the context, it's talking about the fullness of the Spirit's wisdom and power. And there's a very interesting Old Testament background that you can look up later to find out what's going on here. Because in Zechariah chapter 4, there is a, a vision that the prophet had of a lampstand with seven lamps on it. And uh, the interpretation of the vision is given to the prophet like this. the, The angel says, the vision means, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty, Zechariah 4, 6. Now, what is so special about that? Why why does that echo in the background in Revelation 1? Well, you see, in Zechariah, at that particular time, the people of Judah were suffering. It was a time of tremendous weakness, a time of great poverty. And for that reason, the people were struggling to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. If you know your Old Testament, you'll remember that the the temple was the focal point of their faith. But more than that, without the temple, the people didn't have an identity. So it was a very serious problem. And you see, the seven lamps on that lampstand were meant to convey to the people of Judah that their help was not going to come from human might or from human power, No, their help would come by the Spirit of the Lord Almighty. By his power, he would enable them to complete the building of the temple. Humanly speaking, it was an impossible task. But the Spirit would supply the power to get the job done. And of course, he did. Now that's why, you see, you've got this sevenfold element in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1. It's pointing to the perfectly sufficient power of God's Holy Spirit. But there's something more here. Because, you see, uh, in that verse it talks about the seven spirits before God's throne. Now keep a finger there, turn over the page to chapter 5 and verse 6. Revelation 5 verse 6. Now this is one of the visions that God gave to John. Verse 6. John says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He, that is the lamb, had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, let's hold these things together. There's a vision of the Lamb. That's a reference to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it says that this Lamb has the marks of slaughter, death, on him. He also has seven horns and seven eyes. And then it interprets that by saying that these are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, I know that the symbolism sounds a bit weird to us, but please notice this. In chapter 1, the seven spirits are before God's throne. 
But does the Holy Spirit, in the fullness of his power and might, just stay in heaven before his throne? No. Chapter 5 says, those seven spirits of God come from the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he sends them throughout the earth. Why does he do that? Well, because that's where the suffering people of the Lord Jesus are. He's talking about your churches back home. He's talking about St Barnabas here this morning. Now, are you getting the picture? The Holy Spirit is the fullness of the power of God. He's before the throne, but he doesn't stay there. He's commissioned by Christ to take his power and his wisdom and his comfort and his strength to the people of God everywhere. And so when you put chapter 1 verse 4 alongside chapter 5 verse 6, you have the Spirit for all your weakness. Why does Jesus Christ send the Holy Spirit throughout all the earth? I'll tell you why. It's so that in the fullness of his power and strength, he can nerve Christians not to compromise when the heat is on. He enables us to maintain a faithful witness when remaining faithful looks like the most difficult thing in the world. Dear friends, there is grace and peace from the Spirit for you in all your weakness. And then lastly, what we see here is the Messiah for all your fears. Because verse 5 says that this grace and peace is from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now what does it mean when it says that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness? Well, it could perhaps mean uh, a reference to Jesus' earthly life when he testified and taught the word of God faithfully. It could be that. I don't think it is. More likely, it is a reference to the faithfulness of Jesus in his death. Because in the book of Revelation, faithfulness is often associated with being faithful to the point of death. So look at uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Can we all see chapter 2, verse 10 in our Bibles? Jesus is talking to the church at Smyrna. And he says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. Look on a few verses to chapter 2, verse 13, and the letter to the church at Pergamum, where Jesus refers to an individual by the name of Antipas. We don't actually know a great deal about him, but Jesus describes him in chapter 2, verse 13, as my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. 
Antipas was a faithful witness. What happened to him? He got killed. So in the book of Revelation, the word witness often has this this sense of martyrdom, which is actually the root meaning of the word in the original language. Don't press that point too far, but it's good to know it. This phrase, faithful witness, often carries the idea of faithfulness to the point of death. And I think it helps us that our Saviour, Jesus Christ, is a faithful witness. Because you see, when he calls you and, you and I to be that way, he's been there before us. He's done it. Have you ever asked yourself, um, if I was really put under pressure, if I was threatened with death or ridicule for being a Christian or put under intense psychological pressure, would I still be faithful in confessing Jesus? Would I hold up under the crunch? Could I do that? Or is my faith actually just a fantasy, really, that I have on Sundays at church when it's okay to be a Christian? That's a searching question, isn't it? There's a cathedral in France and uh, on one occasion some tourists were visiting and uh, they were really interested in the the Gothic architecture and the the marvellous stained glass windows. And they had questions. Um, And they saw this man walking around in the shadows and he was dressed in ecclesiastical garb. And so they stopped him and asked him to explain some of the history. And uh, as it turned out, this man was the bishop. So he told them a little bit about the architecture and so on. And then the tourists asked him if there was um, any special stories uh, in the cathedral's history. And the bishop said, yes, there, there are. Because a few years before, there'd been a group of gangsters uh, in that city. Uh, and they had a rather unusual initiation right into the gang. If anyone wanted to join the gang, what they had to do was to go before the high altar in the cathedral and say three times out loud, Jesus Christ, you died for me and I don't give a damn. And then they would be admitted into the gang. And uh, the bishop said there was one young man who wanted to join, so he went at night into the cathedral and some of the ringleaders of the gang went with him. He went before the high altar and the first time he said out loud, Jesus Christ, you died for me and I don't give a damn. And he began to say it a second time and uh, his voice cracked. Uh, He choked on his words. He couldn't actually get the words out and he looked at these thugs standing around him who were looking pretty twitchy at that point, and then he just turned and ran out of the cathedral. Tourists, of course, are endlessly curious, aren't they? And uh, they said to the bishop, tell us, what happened to that boy? And the bishop paused for a moment, and he said quietly, it was me. See, under pressure, it's tough, isn't it? It's tough to confess Christ. It's tough not to denounce him either explicitly 
Or, and I think this is our likely point of weakness, or by neglect. Do we have anything to work against that pressure, that that fear of pressure? Yes, we do. Jesus Christ was a faithful witness to the point of death. And it strengthens us to know that we have a Saviour who faced those exact same pressures and remained faithful and who knows precisely what it's like to be in that situation. But then John also says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, that's obviously a a reference to the resurrection. But it doesn't simply mean that Jesus was the the first chronologically uh, to rise among his people because the term firstborn also carries the idea of supremacy. It's actually the way that the word is used in Psalm 89 and Colossians 1. The idea is that that Jesus has supremacy over all the dead and especially over the people of God who have died. It's rather like the, the firstborn son, isn't it, in a family who has responsibility to look after the younger ones, to care for them. And that's the idea here, you see. It means that even in death, even in death, the people of God are not disconnected from Jesus. The fact that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead means that the rest of the family are going to follow him in resurrection, physical resurrection. He will raise every single one. He's the firstborn from the dead. Can I ask you, do you think of Jesus like that? Do you? Do you see how it helps you face your fear of death? Ravensbrück was one of the most notorious Nazi concentration camps in World War II. And on one occasion, a terrified uh, Jewish girl was being marched towards the gas chamber And with her was Maria, who was a Russian nun. And she voluntarily walked with this Jewish girl straight into the gas chamber. She didn't have to do it, but she did it anyway. And as she walked, somebody overheard her saying, Christ is risen. There's nothing to fear. Now, I don't think that means that you and I are to relish death or have daydreams about how courageous you and I are going to be if we have to die for our faith. I don't think we should take it that far, but at least it should take the ultimate terror and fear out of death. What does Jesus himself say about this? That's a good question, isn't it? Look at chapter 1, verse 17. John meets the risen Jesus. He's scared out of his wits. Jesus says, verse 17, Do not be afraid. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. 
Come back to verse 5. Because not only is Jesus the firstborn from the dead, he's also the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, in a room like this, there will be somebody who has faced pressure from people in authority coming at you to deny Christ. We're not yet in that situation here in South Africa, praise God. But there are governments, aren't there, who say if you don't knuckle under and deny Christ, we will take your job from you, we will deny your children a university education and we might even put you in prison. Praise God that we're not quite there yet here. But many countries are. And that's the way it was for John's readers. You know, when when Domitian was emperor, uh, there were often spectacular rallies in the various cities throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, whenever the emperor entered the amphitheatre, The crowd were expected, now listen to this, they were expected to stand up and shout, you are worthy. I think that helps us understand the significance of that scene in Revelation chapter 4, where we get a little preview, a glimpse of the worship in heaven. I'm sure you know the passage. The heavenly hosts are praising the Creator, saying, you are worthy. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 5, they're saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Now friends, that's not just a nice piece of liturgy, although it is. That actually is a political statement. But it is also faithful worship. Faithful worship that refuses to give that honour to Caesar or anybody else. God's people will only give that honour to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the Lamb himself. And what helps you face your fear of those in authority is the fact that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We don't know when we might have to face that kind of pressure, but don't let's be naive about it. Please don't sit there thinking, this isn't my situation, it's never going to happen to me. That would be naive. Let me give you an illustration of the attitude all God's people must have when that pressure comes. Back in the late 1500s, uh, a pastor called Robert Bruce, he was the moderator of the Church of Scotland in the 16th century, He was preaching at uh, St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh and on that particular occasion King James was in attendance. If you know your history, King James was an extremely immoral and brutal man and um, on this occasion he carried on talking to his attendance while Robert Bruce was preaching. So Robert Bruce stopped and uh, the king stopped talking because after all, nobody wants to be caught talking during the sermon, even if if you're a king. So Bruce um, then continued preaching, and predictably, King James carried on talking again, so Bruce stopped again, and King James was silent. When Bruce resumed the third time, 
King James started talking louder than ever to the friends that he had in the gallery with him. And Robert Bruce stopped in his sermon and he looked directly up at King James in the gallery and he said, it is a wise saying of the wisest of kings that when the lion roars, all the beasts of the field become silent. Well, the lion of the tribe of Judah is roaring now in the voice of his gospel and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. That took some guts, didn't it? It's a pretty brave thing to say to your king, especially if he's got a violent reputation, but not if you know the ruler of the kings of the earth. Because, quite frankly, what king do you then have to fear? Here is, in this text, the Messiah for all your fears. Can you name your fears this morning? There's some fears that are implicit in the text. Fear of death, fear of compromise, fear of pressure from powerful people. But there are many more fears. Do you realise that in Jesus Christ, the way that he's presented here, you have the Messiah for all your fears? Can you face the week ahead with all of its uncertainties and challenges? Well, if you know the God of this text and the grace and the peace that he provides, well, yes, you can. Because he gives grace. And that means not just undeserved saving grace, but also sustaining grace that steadies you and stabilises you. And he gives you peace. Not just peace with God, but the peace that will be fully revealed on the last day when Jesus brings peace into the world and reigns unopposed. And in the meantime, we serve the God who gives you grace and peace in all your circumstances. And of course the important thing, the most important thing, is not simply the gift, but the identity of the giver. And the giver is the God for all your times, the Spirit for all your weakness and the Messiah for all your fears. Let's pray. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have an inexhaustible treasury of divine resources. Help us to come to you day by day and moment by moment, for fresh supplies 
of the grace and the peace that we need in order to maintain a faithful, consistent witness to Christ in all our circumstances. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.